But he, wanting to justify himself, said to him, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I can't think of a more relevant parable for today. Jesus today, it seems, confronts you with ideas of race, class, cities, wealth, and nationality. These are the same issues that have been brought to the forefront of our national conversation daily, initially by the COVID-19 lockdown, and then, of course, by Black Lives Matter, the election cycle and the constant drumming of the mainstream media. Generations also have been tutored with indoctrination by bad actors at our public schools, our universities, in motion pictures and on television, been tutored to believe that everything is a matter of the oppressed and the oppressor, with violent revolution being the only solution to overcome. And now we have an app that's installed on a phone that sits in most people's pocket. And using that, these same bad actors now can conquer and divide us into warring parties with the brilliant social media, which is ironically (laughs) anti-social as it drives us apart. But in our parable today, you'll notice that, if it was a parable at all, actually, you'll notice that race... Class, wealth, and nationality are really only just a context for what is a much bigger question. The bigger question that the lawyer asked Jesus was this. How are you justified? That is, made right before God. Is it by way of fulfilling the command which the lawyer rightly recited? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Are you justified by way of the law? And if so, then his question is really important. Who then is my neighbor? If I must love my neighbor, who is it? So this lawyer, and Jesus plays along, imagines that there is a salvation that can be attained by way of your doing. And if that's true, if you can save yourself by way of keeping that law that God had commanded, then that question, again, it makes sense. Who is my neighbor? I need to do it in order to be saved. We're really asking the same question today. Despite all the questions about race and class and wealth and inequality and the way that maybe our system itself is oppressing, the bigger question that's actually being asked is, how can I save myself? Or how can we save our people or our nation? So let's imagine we'll play the same, play the same game as Jesus did with the lawyer. Let's imagine that if we only just gave peace a chance, or if we only just imagined a better future for our people with no heaven and no hell, let's imagine for a moment that it could be accomplished. Let's look at the history of the world. And is there an example in all the history of the world where we've managed to pull it off? 
to live at peace, to live in harmony? No, there isn't, and you know that. Every idealistic utopia that has been proposed and that has been tried to be brought into existence by revolution, every single one of them ended in violence or the violent taking it by force. We heard two of those stories today. One, according to the chronicler, who talked about the Samaritans who once conquered Judah and Jerusalem, taking their kinsmen into exile, oppressed and oppressor. But then notice that the evangelist shows us the opposite. Judah and Jerusalem putting the Samaritans under their thumb, now the shoe being on the other foot. The oppressed becomes now the oppressor. Thus, none of what you see today should actually surprise you in this world. Read the scriptures, and you'll find that brother against brother, that's been the case from day eight and all the way to the present. Racism, class inequality, economic oppression, and war are not inherent in our political system. They're inherent in humanity. You are sinners. And this sin manifests itself in all kinds of sinfulness, lawlessness. That's what makes the lawyer's question naive. Can you overcome the way that sin has broken out in your life by a new, better system? Well, actually, to some limited degree. He's a lawyer. He knows that laws restrain sin. But they only do so by the grace of God. And they never do so perfectly in this life. It's right. You should seek to live by way of the law, like the lawyer did. To pay attention to the words you speak. Or as the psalmist says, to guard the door of your lips. To think, to use the reason and senses God has given you before you act. To examine your motives and your assumptions. That is, again, to live according to God's law, to love God, his word, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But it never actually works. And it was never intended to work. If salvation came by way of law, then what was the point of the promise made to Abraham, the promised offspring, Jesus? That's what Paul said. Ultimately, only a changed heart is going to finally do the job. And you can't give yourself a new heart. Instead, you pray every divine service, create in me a clean heart, O God. And this is entirely God's doing. It's entirely his giving. A transplant that was done for you when you were baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptized, as Paul says, into his death. The new man, Jesus, is constantly at work in you by his word and his spirit to forgive you daily, to restore your love for God and your neighbor daily, to renew and to strengthen you. But without God's doing and his giving, there's actually no way that you can love your neighbor. It's only he alone that can work love in you. And because this comes from God, it's by way of his giving, you now see your neighbor in a different light. 
You don't see him as oppressor or oppressed. You don't see him by the color of his skin, by his economic status, by his nationality. You see him as someone for whom Jesus died. Someone for whom Jesus also seeks to give this life. Back to the parable for a moment. Did you notice? I said there was a detail that maybe you haven't noticed before. Every character in the story today has been given some kind of identification. Every character Jesus attaches some way to separate or distinguish him. And actually, it's the same ways that we separate and distinguish ourselves from one another. The way that we divide, the way that we fight against one another. There's the lawyer, and you probably have, well, at least a few lawyer jokes in your back pocket. There's the priest, there's the Levite, and then there's the Samaritan. These are separated by race, by nationality, by wealth, by economic status, by vocation. Except for one, the man in the ditch. All we know about him is that he was on his way to Jericho. Suppose we could assume he was from Jericho, but we don't know that. He's just a man in the ditch. No other identification. Now, it's below the priest, below his status, to care for this dying man. It's ritually unclean for the Levite to have anything to do with him. And the Samaritan, well, they're at odds. There's a race war between the two of them and this man on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, presumably from Judah. But in the end, none of that actually matters. Not how you label yourself or how you've been labeled. That's one of Jesus' points. It's not the main point, but it is a side point that privilege, class, race, ethnicity, status, when it comes to Christ and his kingdom, they don't matter. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free. Who is your neighbor? That's the wrong question. And yet it's still the question that we're asking today. Who is the oppressor? Who is the racist? Who is the tyrannical ruler? Who is the group or institution that is inherently or systematically evil? Again, separate, seeking to separate, to divide, to actually make distinction by race and class and culture and nationality, when Jesus would have us do this, the opposite. It's the wrong question. We're actually all the same. First, having been created by God the Father, but more importantly, having been redeemed by Christ Jesus. Jesus, who gave his life for the sins of not just some people, but for the whole world. All freely forgiven in his name. If only they would believe. And thus, it's only under the merciful giving of Jesus, his suffering, death, and burial, to forgive our sins, that there is any hope for any of you. Any hope for peace and order. So let's go up to that 40,000-foot view and ask the same question then about our country and that question that's being asked. Is there oppression inherent in our political system? And the answer is sometimes yes. 
Our U.S. Constitution originally did not provide legal protections for its citizens, which we depend on today, such as search warrants only based on probable cause, or a speedy public trial with a jury, or the right to retain counsel. None of that happened until the Fourth through Eighth Amendments. We didn't abolish slavery or involuntary servitude for anyone until the Thirteenth Amendment in 1865. We didn't have uniform voting rights for all until the 26th Amendment, which was in 1971, not that long ago. So nationally, we have been and continue to seek to correct any mistakes, omissions, or inherent injustices in our governing documents. Our governance has always been a work in progress. But there are those amongst us who think that there is a hope for some kind of utopian, perfect society. And some of them today think that the efforts of the last 244 years to bring about a more perfect union, well, they failed. Despite all the attempts to restrain, curtail, and bring justice to the citizens of our nation by way of law, they say the U.S. is a failure. And the only answer then is a violent revolution with the oppressed overcoming the oppressor and putting in a new system. Only that will do the job, they say. Abolish everything. But the injustice, the inequity, and the oppression experienced by some are not the result of, well, a system written into the very fabric of our governance, but rather of individuals and sometimes mobs who act according to their sinful heart. Again, the only reason why in this country we experience, and actually in every country, and through all time, that we experience injustice, inequity, and oppression is because of the character of our own heart. And our laws can only do a limited job to restrain us, as God teaches. So this theory that if we overthrow everything and put in something better is even more naive than that certain lawyer's question. What must I do to justify myself? Who is my neighbor? As a nation, we can strive to improve our laws, to elect virtuous and wise rulers, to seek to bring justice and peace to all of our citizens. We can and we should. But there is no possibility of a perfect union of states. While a noble goal and one worth striving for, there's no perfection in this world. Not in you and not in our country nor in its rulers. It's a constant struggle individually and corporately to maintain a nation worth living in and worth leaving for generations to come. And again, just be a student of history. There isn't a single kingdom, no matter how great it was, that has withstood the capacity of mankind to destroy, tear down, and bring chaos and disorder. Many once majestic nations are now nothing but a rubble under layers of sand. No, for you Christians, there is only one kingdom that has stood the test of time, and that's Jesus' kingdom. You are Christ's Israel, gathered from all nations, a holy Christian church. And you aren't ruled by law and order. In the church, in this kingdom, Christ's kingdom, it isn't a struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor. No, citizenship in this kingdom 
is given as a free gift. You've been naturalized by way of adoption and holy baptism. Your record of transgression has been expunged by Jesus' blood-bought forgiveness. And your King Jesus rules over you by grace and mercy, love and peace. This kingdom will never experience fully in this life, in this earth. It is known now to you only by faith. But you will know it by sight when heaven and earth pass away and Jesus ushers in the new heavens and earth. And lastly, most importantly, thinking of the parable, think about all the ways that Christ's kingdom has overcome then what divides and separates us. Again, there is no distinction, male nor female, slave nor free, wealthy nor poor. Jesus only sees you for who you are in him. Indeed, he sees you as one created by the Father and saved by his death. That's it. And that view should change the way you view one another too then. And maybe also the way that you act within this world. Now that Jesus gives you to see everyone as someone for whom he has died, how do you respond to those whom are bad actors? Those who are seeking to destroy and oppress, seeking to forsake the heritage that has been given to them by their forefathers. How do you see them? As enemies of the state? Maybe. But also as sinners in need of Christ's forgiveness. Jesus died for them too. Yes, act as good citizens, vote, speak up, seek justice, especially for the marginalized and oppressed. Seek to overthrow the most tyrannical law of our state today, which allows for the free murder of children in the womb. But also, and I'd say most importantly, no one is your enemy. No, they are all forgiven. And so forgive your enemies. Love them. Even if it means that they're going to make your life miserable, and that you'll lose everything that you love and treasure in this life. Because it might just bring peace and order here for a time. And either way, it doesn't matter, because in the end, Jesus has already made you his own, and you will live forever in his kingdom, his kingdom that will never pass away, that has no end. May God grant it in the name of Jesus. Amen.